I always wear my mask and wash my hands after going home. It's a good tuna, but I think I pay too much. I am the king of the ring. Welcome to the Japan What Podcast, episode 129. And I am your host, Matthew PMBigelow.com. The Japan What Podcast covers AI trends from Japan, the Indo-Pacific, conflict in the Asia-Pacific region, odd items, and more. And I am your host from the Toshi Hisacho Studios in Shinjuku, Tokyo, Japan, the Armpit of Asia. Welcome again, everybody. We are um, expecting snow today, and I hope uh, that doesn't interfere with any of your uh, righteous plans to do whatever you're doing out there. But who knows if it's snowing when you hear this, you know, just a little, uh, little local color on my end of the podcast here. We are busy bees today. Oh, lots of things to cover. So we're just going to jump right into it with a little bit of new products. Have you ever heard of Homo Sausage? From Japan. That's, of course, whatever you're having. There's no judgment here. It could be cheese. It could be heroin. Whatever you want. Speaking of cheese, Japan's Homo Sausage now comes with cheese. Now, when I first saw this, I was wondering if I was getting involved in some sort of um, deep fake hate crime, because those things happen now. You see a deep fake, and you go and commit a hate crime. You got to be on your toes here. You need to parse the data, Um, and in that way, you understand how to... It's like the way airplanes work. Sort of cut in half sentence there. A notification popped up. But this is what I've been thinking with parsing the data before we launch into the homo sausage with cheese. Now, it's not a hate crime. It's not a hate product. And there's, I'm going to explain it all. I will. But one thing you need to know about parsing the data is it's like the wing on an airplane. If you just put all of the data under or over the wing, you're not going to fly. But if you parse the data, you're going to get rid of the information that you don't need. You're going to keep the information that's valuable that goes under the wing and creates the lift. That's how that's what guides you through the modern age here. It's not the AI that's going to direct you through the Ethernet. It's, it's nothing like that. It's the stream of data is coming at you 24-7, 365, unrelentlessly uh, being sent through your phone. Every app you have has algorithms into it. It's sucking the data from the cloud. And if you just... Don't parse the data, it's going to smush you like a bug. But if you parse the data, it'll create the lift effect that you see on those airplanes that have wings on them. Not the um, uh, the breakaway society UFOs that you sometimes see flying over the cities. Not We're not talking about mercury, gravitational, battery type stuff. It's not what we're covering today. We are diligently covering... Japan's homo sausage now comes with cheese, with emphasis on the comes. Um, this comes to us from japantoday.com via Sora News 24. Does it say, and this is not a very long article. In Japan, some terms get lost in translations. 
Uh, lost in translation, with words from other languages having a different meaning in Japanese, like mansion, which means apartment, or condominium, actually. Sabisu, which means freebie, and smato, used to describe somebody with a slim body, and who has fashion that accentuates their slim body. On the other hand, there are words that have the same meaning in Japanese as they do in English, like pizza, sofa, and homo. The latter half, which is short for homosexual. Whoa! And a slur that some members of the LGBTQIA plus community have reclaimed in recent years. So if homo means the same thing here as it does overseas, why is there a sausage brand called Homo in Japan? Well, according to Madison, the company behind the product, the word homo in homo sausage comes from the English word fea, homogenase, referring to the way sausages are processed. This explanation is as much of a surprise to locals as well as foreigners, given that the English word homogenize uh, or homogenize, I'm not sure how to say it, known as uh, kinshitsuka in Japanese, is far from common knowledge. Yeah, everybody knows the one way to use homo. It's like, hey, give me your homo sausage. Yeah, all right, zip. Homo Sausage is celebrating its 70th birthday this year, and to celebrate, it's releasing a new version containing cheese. See, you think that they would put a pride flag on it. Not in Japan. They put cheese in it because you all want to suck the cheese out of a homo sausage. Madison says, we use a mild and melt-in-the-mouth cheese that goes well with the light taste of homo sausage. And if you're wondering what homo sausage usually contains, it's a mixture of minced fish, mainly walleye cod, with the addition of tuna to give it a rich fish flavor. The cheesy, fishy homo sausage was perfected through trial and error, with a variety of cheeses tested in order to find the perfect balance between sausage and cheese. It'll be available in three price bundles, with each sausage weighing 70 grams. Now, you're going to think that I'm crazy, that I'm just using this as some sort of way to, like, do hate crimes, but it's not. I've seen homo sausage a lot in the stores in Japan. And it's always like, are you sure? <laughs> Am I reading that wrong? Because <laughs> the katakana, sometimes the way you read it in your mind is not the way it's said. If you're if you're a non-native Japanese speaker, it, katakana is one of the ways of writing phonetic speech in, in, in Japanese. Um, it's usually reserved for uh, foreign words or uh, words to, that are too complex for um, the kanji, and you can reduce it with the katakana, which separates it from the hiragana, and the hiragana is, by and large, grammar. Not all the time, but the, generally that's how you would, if there's a bunch of katakana and a bunch of hiragana next to each other, by and large, the katakana is going to be vocabulary, and the hiragana is going to be uh, grammar. But uh, with the homo sausage cheesy iri, or cheese hairi, um it's up to you to decide how much cheese you want to suck out of that homo sausage. I'm sending my friends messages about this. They're like, not responding. <laughs> I'm going to send them the link after uh, I go. Yeah, if you're interested in learning more about the homo sausage, and I think you are, um, you should go to MatthewPMBigelow.com and check out the link and I'll also have some photos posted there. I used to feel a little bit guilty of screenshotting pictures and putting them on the website MatthewPMBigelow.com 
because uh, it's like, well, I didn't take it. I'm sourcing it. I make sure that the credit is there. But oftentimes, like a year later, a year will pass by. And I, I, I remember some sort of picture, usually having to do with tech or military or something like that. And the original article is archived without the picture. And so I really wanted to see the picture just to look at some design or some specs or something like that. Uh, not always with the homo cheese sausage or stuff like that. More like airplanes or um, 5G towers or something like that, where they might have some information about the transmission rates or something like that. Um and it's gone. So I'm like, okay, well, the website kind of serves as an archive after a while. And there are some people that uh, don't listen to the podcast, but they will go to the website a few times a week. I, I see like where they're from on the analytics pop up. It's like, oh, that person from Luxembourg's checking in again. Um, and I don't think they're listening. Just I think they're just like, oh, this is a place where it's this information about AI uh, military conflict and like a wide variety of sources, including things like cheese filled homo sausage is on this one website and people can go there and check it out. So I implore you, I implore you homo sausage. That's there's like some things in the world that need to have their names changed. Um, homo sausage is definitely one of them. And the other one is the country named Niger. Let's move on to the next topic. The next topic is going to be more about Japan. So let's take a look at Japan. Here we go. A lot of the uh, topics that I like to put into their own subcategories or categories uh, end up kind of bleeding into each other these days, um, especially with the world of uh, Society 5.0 and tech and all that. So I'm just putting this underneath um, Japan. Uh, it, it could go under green. It could go under tech. It could go under a variety of things. But just for right now, it's under Japan. But this comes to us from the Asahi Shimbum Asia and Japan Watch. And it's uh, called, the headline is, Rules Outlined for Storing CO2 Underground in uh, CCS projects. Now, I don't think CCS should be in the headline here. Carbon capture and storage would be CCS. Um, and this is published on January 31st, 2024. And we're already uh, February 5th. It's like 10% of the year has already gone by for 2024. What have you done? Uh, what have you done? That's right. One finger at you, 79 fingers right back at my Cheese filled. A demonstration facility for CCS, a technology for capturing carbon dioxide and trapping it underground in Tomakomai, Hokkaido, is seen in this picture that I'll be putting up on MatthewPMBigelow.com. And the article begins. To achieve decarbonization by 2050, the CCS, Carbon Dioxide Capture and Storage Project Bill, which for the first time defines operators' rights and the regulatory framework for such projects, was outlined. The technology involves separating and collecting carbon dioxide from factories and other sources before it diffuses into the atmosphere, then injecting it underground more than 1,000 meters deep for storage. The process is expected to be utilized at refineries and thermal power plants, which emit large amounts of CO2. The outline states a permit system for exploratory drilling and storage operations uh, and how it will be created, and the operators will be responsible for compensation in the event of an accident. The economy ministry will submit the proposal to the current uh, ordinary diet session 
Um, and it says to achieve the central government's goal of virtually zero emissions by 2050, which is a SDG, well, we're United Nations, World Economic Forum style venture. The Kishida administration stressed that the introduction of CCS is essential in areas where decarbonization proves difficult. The GX, Green Transformation Promotion Strategy, the cabinet approved in July last year, stated that the business environment would be prepared to start uh, CCS projects by 2030, another uh, UN SDG um, aim. The bill has two main components, establishing a licensing system for exploratory drilling and storage projects and providing regulations for storage operations. It kind of goes on from there. Now, I don't know about you, but like, what's with this idea of storing and capturing carbon emissions? Um, are the scrubbers not good enough? Do we have to have no emissions there's something very fishy about this project because they're never like, let's plant forests. In fact, a lot of these types, similar types of people from these initiatives will say forests actually need to go uh, because they, they're bad. Read up about it. They will say forests contribute to climate change. Therefore, they have to be cut down. And then they want to put all these giant factories that suck carbon out of the atmosphere and store it underground. Now, I think this is lunacy. This is sheer lunacy on its face. But I was talking about the breakaway society earlier, and I'm not sure how much of a breakaway society there is, but if like, because some people will say the breakaway society are already flying around the sun in these, you know, uh, Mercury-based gravitational triangles and they're zipping around and they're already out there. That's okay. Maybe they are. I don't know. Depending, you know, I've seen some stuff in my life and not all of it's explain explainable, but that's like too far-fetched. But if we think about the breakaway society that we see, for example, the World Economic Forum would be in there. A lot of the billionaires, people like Mark Zuckerberg, they've kind of, Bill Gates, um, Jeff Bezos, some of these people, and I'm sure there's, if you're listening to this in some country where you're from, there's some sort of billionaire class that seems to be outside of the political spectrum, but they're able to influence the society, but they don't really interact with the society. It's like Michael Jackson uh, times a thousand in a way. Um, maybe these people are the breakaway society. Or they're the sub-breakaway society. They're like following on the heels of the triangle saucer people flying around the sun. I don't know. Um, I'm just trying to say we can put some cards on the table here and 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 have an open mind for this for this concept. But I'm reducing the breakaway society to the billionaire class who have enough money to build all these underground bunkers. And if there's like this giant fear amongst the breakaway society that there's too many people and that we're going to have a pole shift, uh, look it up. There's people seriously looking into the pole shift, the, uh, where, you know, the magnetic south and north uh, poles shift, uh, the aurora borealis. It's like this coming down too low. You kind of hear that. I'm like, is it? I don't know. But doesn't matter. If these people believe this to be happening, they might be building CO2 storage tanks to keep it for themselves when they go underground into their weird um, fantasy lives where it's like, okay, 
I'm so rich. I don't need anybody else. I believe the world is collapsing. So do all my billionaire friends. We gather at all these conferences. We're going to all build bunkers. We're going to go all underground. But what if it's too deep for some essential gases or some such? Remember, they're going to store this CO2 a thousand meters underground. Well, maybe they want to access it at a later point, like with those weird seed vaults that are in Norway. That's like, hey, we're going to put all the seeds in the world in this seed vault in Norway. And they're like, why? Like, you know, touching their nose, winking their eyes. It's like, okay, can't hurt, I guess. Well, everybody's like, yeah, we all need seeds. It's very agreeable thing. But if they're like, well, in case of total collapse and we're in our underground bunkers and we don't have access to some essential gases like CO2, we might die. So what we're going to do is we're going to create this ecosystem where we lobby governments to set up this weird carbon capture technology, send it way underground, which is where we plan on being, and then we will have access to the CO2. Now, This on its face sounds totally insane. I agree with you. You're thinking, what the hell is this guy talking about? But at the same time, what I'm talking about is based on carbon capture and storage projects where governments want to cut down trees, put in these giant factories, make sure not a single, like, particulate matter of co2 escapes from every anything capture it all and store it into the bedrocks of the ocean for whatever reason like that itself is incredibly nutty it's no you can't really say it's like a good idea i don't know anybody who's like yeah that's the thing i've been waiting for finally the future is here i don't want a flying car i want carbon capture and storage technology nobody's saying that but they are And that's what's kind of very strange about these uh, projects and initiatives. And is this like a make work project? Could you imagine like, I am going to take this bag of CO2 and shove it into a pipe and send it down a thousand meters underground because not a single particulate, not a single little tiny drip of CO2, not not one little thing will escape our factories and pollute the earth. We're going to take it and store it. I don't know. Seems a little nutty to me. Uh, moving on from that. Toyota chairman says electric cars will never dominate global market. This comes to us from uh, Zero Hedge. And again, from it's like, a, like about a week ago. I'm not going to get into it too much, but um, Toyota's chairman and former CEO, Akio Toyota, uh, is it, it, saying these things. And, and Toyota is like, they're engineering first. Um, and when you look at what they're doing with their cars and how popular they are, they're not a country that looks at these things like foolishly, like um, they're not just all in. They're trying to develop hydrogen as next level um, fuel for mass consumption or something like that. But they're, they're saying they're going to create the batteries, but they're not going to be uh, Mr. Battery or they're not going to be Mr. Electric. And there's a massive um, glut of electric cars in the market right now. Um, China's dumping them all over the world um, and Tesla's slowing down. And a lot of uh, people are just saying, no, we don't want the electric cars, especially rentals and things like that. They're saying customers go, yeah, the idea is nice, but if I'm stuck in this rental car, I don't know how to charge it. If I just have a gallon of gas in the back, you know, I can pour it in and get to where I'm going. So 
there's this um, dichotomy between what we want and what we have. And not everybody is saying the electric cars are going to be the dominant um, model for automotive, for the automotive industry moving forward into the future. Uh, I, I, I don't mind electric cars. I think they're great for inner city use um, and the hybrid models as well. The, the, the Prius, like the hybrid one. It charges batteries, but there's all these components inside where it's using the fuel and then you go down and you slow down and then that creates energy for capturing into the battery. And then you have like this really interesting ecosystem and you can get over a million kilometers on those cars too. So very efficient. But uh, I, I like the idea of like the yes and, okay, we'll have electric cars, we'll have hybrid cars, we'll have gasoline cars, we'll have hydrogen cars. And, and that way... If one aspect of the supply chain breaks down, we have backup systems in place. It just makes a lot of sense. But this whole, I don't know what it is. Is it social media? Is it the, is it just like the mob pile on effect of having like the AI algorithms pumping so much of the population, getting them all spun up to go into one direction to kind of create market value on behalf of the algorithm designers and whoever's paying them off at that moment in time. I don't know, but uh, I've learned to take a step back and kind of go, well, I like having the, the diversity of, um, of energy and I like having the diversity of um, finance as well. Uh, why don't we look at it that way? And that's Japan for today. Here we go. <laughs> weird podcast i don't usually get this weird but that's where the data has taken me and i listen to the data the data has spoken let's listen to updates in the japan society 5.0 sphere the fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the internet of things into new wisdom Society 5.0, a technology-based, human-centered society. The fourth industrial revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face. It will, for example, free us from the stress of driving, allowing us to safely visit anyone, anytime. All right, Japan Society 5.0, I explain this every time I do it, it was launched by the Japanese government in 2016, 2017, around then, um, to kind of showcase the the new bevy of technologies and to create a new society, data-centered, driven by AI and all of that. And the idea was to have drones and drone delivery and AI medicine and all that. Uh, but you fast forward a few years and then things change, you know, governments change and policies change. And now a lot of the Japanese Japan Society 5.0 is based around SDGs, Japan's powerful um, business lobby group, the Keidan Ren. They stand in front of signs that say, you know, Japan Society 5.0 for SDGs. They talk about it in the SDG framework. So it's kind of been captured a lot and it's moved on from. Uh, in many ways, the original idea is to have drone delivery and self-driving cars and all of that. There are still initiatives, but they've, they're really nerfed. They're, they're constantly nerfed. Like by the time they're squeezed through the regulatory process, it's like 
here's a self-driving bus that follows an 800-meter trail in some rural part of the country where it's expected up to 19 people will use it. It's like, okay, well, that's not really some revolution of the technology. It is being implemented, and could it be like one of those Japanese things where it's step-by-step? I don't know. But then there's the opposite side of the Japan Society 5.0, where there's the grassroots version of it, which it's, it is Society 5.0, but they're not underneath the directive of Japan Society 5.0. This is like agricultural robots and um, small little startups and cities that provide, uh, you know, uh, robotic warehousing and stuff like that. And it's the, the get up and go types and they, they, they figure out ways to stack the technology, market it for a reason or a purpose for local needs, and then uh, uh, put it out that way. And that's growing as well. So those are like the two factions. And I became really well versed in these ideas when I was working as an English teacher at an AI company, AI company, at a telecommunications company in Japan, one of the major three that invested $100 billion into AI fields. And what I learned was that the technology was great, but there were also a lot of scoundrels in the um, industry. And it's somewhat akin to all those like crypto dudes that, you know, pump and dump crypto scams and leave all their investors holding the bag. Um, and it's kind of easy to be duped because you see these technologies being rolled out and it's like, well, that's going to reduce the cost of my company by a billion dollars a year. I may as well invest a few hundred million dollars in this venture to see what happens. And then poof, they go away. That happened a lot with the SoftBank Vision Fund, which is, you know, I was at the SoftBank telecommunications company, just teaching AI for some reason, did that for five years. Ended four years ago now, though. That's a long time to be away from a job. But anyways, still interested in the topic and following it. But one of the things that um, happened was their main investment. One of the top investments that they made was in this company called WeWork, which was a company that started, I believe, in New York as a co-working space. And it's basically a glamorized internet cafe where instead of just surfing the net or um, going into the, you know, do stuff with girls. The um, WeWork was focusing on office work. You know, you would have your company and you would scale up or scale down. And uh, and they had all these promises within the WeWork um, infrastructure after a while, focusing a lot on AI. And what increased their valuation to something like a $35 billion valuation or higher from what I remember, this article will probably confirm that or not, was that their um, business model was skyrocketing. They're opening branches up all over the world. And their promise of AI for office logistics was something that was being noted on. For some of the examples that they were pro- like trying to say is like, well, we'll install sensors underneath the tables. Um, so we'll understand if legs are there. And if the if there's enough people, we'll understand that the room will get hot or not hot depending on, you know, the time of year, and we could turn on air conditioning or heating systems to make the room cooler or hotter um, before the need to happen uh, comes up and you have to get up and and do it yourself. Something like that. Or um, we will have, uh, you, you won't have to input who's attending meetings or not or something like that. Facial recognition can be used for such things. Uh, and there also things like uh, if you are uh, uh, office in the tech space, 
um, depending on what kind of cycle you're going through, you might need more conference rooms and fewer desks, or you might need more desks and fewer conference rooms. Well, if you stay at WeWork for a few years, we will begin to understand your cycles and we can begin making suggestions to, you know, uh, reduce your desk space and increase your conference room space uh, before the need to uh, do so happens, you know, because it's like, oh, we have too many conferences now or too many meetings now for clients and we don't have enough conference rooms and now everything's getting backlogged and our projects are getting delayed. That kind of this stuff happens quite frequently uh, enough in, in, in large scale corporations because it's such a hard thing to monitor, but it's like this meta level monitoring system. All of, all of these promises were like, you won't, you won't need to have a bunch of managers always having to kind of guess the future. We will know the future with our AI, but it turned out to be a big scam. Like they were, they said that they were implementing it, but they weren't apparently from what I understand. In fact, instead of just putting sensors underneath the tables and saying that they're gathering all this data, there'd be one person in the corner of the room with a clicker. Okay. That six people write it down on a piece of paper. (laughs) So they were making all these wild promises on the front end and delivering nothing on the back end. And, um, you know, like their business model was really spreading, but they weren't turning a profit, but it was hoped that their AI models and AI systems would reduce cost and increase efficiency to the point where you would create more uh, profit, not based on the amount of money you're bringing in, but by the amount of costs that you're cutting from within the companies. None of that was really happening at all. So these were like AI scoundrels is what I'm calling them. And it's the title of today's show. And we have an article here from Japan Times um, written by Elizabeth Beattie that kind of describes this. And um, what I'm going to do is, you know, like that that news that I talked about, it's like five, six years old now. It's it's old beans, but it's scuttlebutt that not a lot of people might have known about the kind of AI scoundreling that was going on there. But SoftBank swoops in to rescue WeWork Japan. When all of that scandal happened, um, I don't know how SoftBank managed to do this, but they separated the Japan SoftBank from like, sorry, the Japan WeWork from the rest of the WeWork so that they would hold up their own side of the Japan WeWork side and kind of separate it from the, the global rest because of the potential improvements or potential technology that they still want to dream about implementing uh, are there. And now SoftBank has launched a new headquarters about four years ago, and it was based on WeWork open office style um, layout. So they're still all in like it's WeWork and SoftBank still feel a very strong connection for the future to grow in. So Uh, Let's take a look here. SoftBank has announced it will take full ownership of WeWork Japan, shouldering the company's business-related debts. The development comes just four months after the troubled co-working business, once valued at $47 billion, oh, I said 35, filed for bankruptcy in the U.S. WeWork Japan has filed a petition for civil rehabilitation at the Tokyo District Court and received approval, enabling SoftBank to absorb the group entirely through a newly established subsidiary, SoftBank said. Uh, quote, this, when was this written? This was written on stupid uh, Japan Times, February 2nd. 
During the period of the business succession process, we expect no changes to service levels or contract terms for current WeWork Japan members, just SoftBank said. Uh, SoftBank and WeWork Japan will, quote, collaborate on initiatives for smart buildings and smart offices to generate synergies and achieve future business growth, the statement said. SoftBank was already a major WeWork shareholder, and CEO Masayoshi Son is a longtime investor in the business, sticking with the company through its many ups and downs. While WeWork was losing money in 2019, Son still spoke enthusiastically about the co-working company's future prospects, saying he wanted to invest more in the company despite the skepticism. Quote, some of my investors say, Masa, you get too excited and too much concentration into one company. Don't go too far, he said during an interview with CNBC. Uh, and it kind of goes on from there. Now, if you can get like the AI scoundrels out of things like WeWork, the 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 technology is there and it's waiting to be used. You just need to have the correct people implement it, and that's a major thing for all of this AI automation technology. Who has it and who's going to implement it? Uh, the same thing goes for the central bank digital currencies. Do you really want somebody, the head of the United States, like Biden or Trump, who are going to be in their 80s, Biden's in his 80s. Do you really want lifelong politicians in Japan, such as Mr. Kishida? Do you really want these people in charge of implementing a central bank digital currency? My answer is no. I don't, I'm not sure about the ideas of central bank digital currency. I, I largely hate the idea, but I don't want it to be filled with so many um, loopholes and back doors that it gets abused incessantly because people just rush into it with the wrong leadership. If you rush in, if you go with the right leadership or you wait for the right leadership to come around, they might be able to navigate through such things. Um, the, the leadership is the key. SoftBank could be uh, in a good leadership position to implement these types of technologies because they're always focused on merit, they're focused on profit, and they're focused on uh, delivering products according to a scheduled time. It doesn't always go that way, but they could be in the right position to clear out the AI scoundrels and implement this um, AI office technology, which I support like 100%. I really support it. It reduces the need for a bunch of people who don't want to become middle managers to be pushed into middle manager positions inside major companies, and they just kind of handle data all day like, do we need to reduce the cost of our lighting system and how do we do that? And we need to 3% down here. So what we'll do is we'll turn off the lights and try to tell everyone to go home, but then we can't do that for too long because of legal reasons. So we'll turn them back on and all of these other things. Like you could just have lights that gradually dim and gradually come back on. There's uh, panels now for windows that turn black depending on when the sun hits them. Uh, so you could have lighting and shading kind of be automated depending on the weather and the sun. It's not going to be perfect, but it's going to be better than always waiting for things that get too hot or too cold to reduce the amount of cost that you're heating and cooling these large buildings with over time. And same thing with like flushing toilets and all this stuff. There's so much waste that goes on inside these major, major buildings. If you could automate a lot of that stuff 
with with the AI technology that's just it's there. It's just waiting to be stacked and implemented without a bunch of scoundrels trying to make off with four hundred million dollars at a time every time a company tries to implement the technology. If you get the right leadership in there, it could be done. So I hope SoftBank manages to um, make WeWork Japan. Um, into the company that it deserves to be. Uh, otherwise, it's just going to be more of these AI scoundrels all over the freaking place. Uh, should we do more Japan Society? I'm gonna I'm gonna do more Japan Society 5.0. Um, I'll do one more just because it's breaking news. Award-winning author's AI use revelation royals Japan's literary world. This is where we're like I mentioned earlier on a previous podcast that more and more of these uh, large language models such as chat GPT are becoming more interesting than people and they're becoming better than most people as well. You can get chat GPT to write up um, advertising um, for whatever thing you want to advertise and it's going to do just as good a job or better than a team of people that take a week and charge you a lot of money and then give you some sort of trite like explore the regions of Japan that you would never see before with the Japan web podcast. You can just put into chat GPT, write up an ad for this podcast based on this description. And I can copy and paste it and it will give me something that would take an ad team a week to write and um, charge me four or $500 to do so. Now the same thing is now happening with the literary world where there's enough great novels for AI to pilfer from to create not quite as good as great novels, but much better than average novels. And AI authors or authors are now becoming um, aware of this. Tokyo, Kyoto. This comes to us from the Mainichi, Japan's national daily since 1922. Comments by a Japanese author who revealed she used a generative artificial intelligence to help write the novel for which she won Japan's most prestigious book award have roiled the country's literary industry. While some welcome the use of AI as a new writing tool, those managing Japan's book contests question how the technology is influencing authors' creativity. Although most agree it is a long way from producing novels of superior quality on its own. Oftentimes what will happen is like the author will write a few paragraphs and be like, Chat GPT, is there like repetitive language in here? Like an editor, like instead of consulting with an editor and chat GPT will be like, yep, yeah, here, here, and here. And you can say like, I want this speaker to be a little bit more formal and arrogant. What words could they use? And then they'll give the chat GPT will just give you a list of words. So you're feeding your ideas and it's feeding back to you what you hope to be answers to your questions or your ideas to, to flesh out your ideas. The novel by... 33-year-old Rie Kudan, titled Tokyo no Dojoto, or Sympathy Tokyo Tower, uh, Sympathy Tower Tokyo, is set in the Japanese capital in the not-so-distant future when generative AI has become ubiquitous and took the 170th Akutagawa Prize for for up-and-coming authors in January. Major prize, by the way. If you can win the Akutagawa Prize, you're pretty much set in Japan as an author for many, many novels for the rest of your life. You just put winner of Akutagawa Prize on the top and it's going to sell. The commotion surrounding Kudan's novel comes after she said at a press conference upon claiming the prize that around 5% of the book's text was taken directly from generative AI, end quote. Shuichi Yoshida, the novelist who sits on the prize-selected panel, said that AI hardly came up in discussions during the evaluation process, adding that, quote, it may have been perceived as just another character in the story, end quote. 
But Kudan's comments about using AI have stirred debate with comments coming from both sides on social media. The story has also made international headlines, dot, 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 dot. So, um, I'll be taking a, an excerpt from the, from the book that shows the, uh, parts of the book that were written with AI. I just thought that was interesting. The AI is now uh, better than the critics, meaning that you can use AI and the critics will not even realize it. In the past, you could kind of tell because it would be written really strangely. Uh, People used to submit when I was a teacher, 2012, about them. People, students would some like adult students who just didn't have enough time. They would type out their uh, English essays to me in Japanese, use Google Translate to translate them. And I would just laugh my balls off reading how bad the translation was. It was generally hilarious. But starting around 2018, 2019, it got really, really good thanks to everybody using specific platforms. Everybody talking to YouTube and then uploading all that information into YouTube Google uses their automatic translation to understand pronunciations of words and and so on and correct the uh, mispronunciation, mistranslated words. So if somebody says like the company we work in a, in a billion, uh, eight, 25 different languages, YouTube now has the database on how the pronunciation changes between those 25 different languages so they don't make a mistake as much as they used to. Stuff like that. So everybody inputting their information into the cloud via major platforms such as YouTube or Spotify or, uh, or you know, it goes on and on and on. That's why it's all free, by the way. It's, it's just siphoning up the data so they can use it for later. Um, it's... Uh, it, 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 it's way beyond um, what most people are even capable of noticing anymore. And so that's also proven in the literary world where people writing about AI in a novel about AI are using AI to write the novel about AI and then literary um, awards go to the person using the AI to write about AI by people who didn't know that AI was not used to write about the AI. That's going to be Japan Society 5.0 for today. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0, a technology-based, human-centered society. industrial revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face. Just a remember, a reminder everybody to go to MatthewPMBigelow.com check out the links, the information send us some traffic, it really helps. Also, why not listen to the podcast on these new podcasting 2.0 apps. These are apps that use open source protocols to avoid censorship by the big tech companies. And they also are offering more and more services to their users as well, such as transcripts, uh, comments, chapters, and more. 
They also offer Bitcoin micropayments directly from you to the podcaster if you have a GetAlbi wallet. This is so that we don't have to rely on um, Google and everybody else uh, taking a cut every time somebody wants to send some uh, donations our way. It's very interesting technology. Podverse is the app I use. There's Fountain. There's Podcast Guru. A whole bunch. Just go to podcastapps.com and check it out there. Uh, you can also send a donation to the podcast via PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Japan W-U-T. That's paypal.me forward slash Japan W-U-T. Thank you for listening. Let's move on with the podcast. We don't know. I made that, by the way. I wanted to look at uh, depopulation and migration for today. And we'll see where that goes. So what do I got for this? Weird Corner. It's not a weird corner. I played the wrong one, but we're going with it anyways. Uh, As we move into depopulation, and I've been trying to raise this topic a lot more. When I think of depopulation in Japan, minus 600,000 natives a year and increasing, you know, 500,000 migrants every few years, um, we're going to lose a lot of expertise in Japan very soon. And uh, it's not like it's going to be fewer people means more meat for me at a meat buffet. Uh, we have to like, there's a lot of maintenance, bridges, tunnels. It's an earthquake prone country with a lot of advanced systems and technology inside of it. The nuclear power plants, um, the Shinkansen's, the train networks, all of these things require um kind of a a very set skill of knowledge and we just can't copy and paste these things into AI or migrants and hope for the best moving forward. So when we think about depopulation, it's like, okay, well, maybe there are a lot of people and well, if it's going to be reduced to 80 million by the end of the century, that's what it is. Demographics are your future. But, um, what does that mean? You know, it's like, well, the schools are closing in rural areas, but rural areas want people to move there. Well, how can you move to a place where your schools are going to close? What's What would be the incentive for me? So the schools close, that means there's a lot of jobs that get lost. That means it's an economic sinkhole. Does that mean I now have to drive an extra 30 kilometers a day to the next school that might close? I, I'm not sure. There are pockets that are seeing more population increasing for now, but we're not sure what that means for the long term. And then there's also the issue of, okay, well, we have more migrants, but where are the migrants from? I mean, if if you like like me, a Canadian, white boy, Canadian living in Japan, you're like, okay, a lot more migrants are coming here. Maybe I'll have more beer bars and I'll have more Canadian friends. It's like, no, no, no. There's The Canadians aren't moving here anymore. There's less than 10,000 of us. But in the past five years, 500,000 Vietnamese have arrived on visas and what have you. They don't all stay, but some of them do a lot more staying. So, so it's like, okay, well, if I'm going to live in these migrant communities in Japan, well, it's going to be, you know, me and a, like a, a, like a vast array of other Asian people. It's like, well, is that what I envisioned myself being in when I moved here? And it's like, well, the answer is maybe not. So there's these things that it's like, well, are you racist? No, I'm not racist. No racist. <laughs> these are just things that you got to consider when you're thinking about depopulation and migration. Now, here's some headlines that we can look at. A lot of these are not new, but it's just like um, I like to save up 
sometimes a, a bevy of topics to kind of illustrate the point. So this is not a breaking news podcast. We don't have to be like the southern border. We don't have to be the Senkaku Islands. We don't have to be in react mode. We're in amalgamation mode so that we can create the lift effect and soar through the skies of information into the future. Government, sorry, governor in East Japan wants to abolish nationality requirement for prefecture government jobs. I'm fine with that. As long as the people can speak Japanese really well, as well as another language to service the people in their communities that might have some problems. You might have families that come to Japan where one or two or three members of the family speak great Japanese, but maybe some of them don't and they can't always rely on family members. So if you have like a person from ABC country in the government position, um, as long as they're not, you know, shills serving another country's interests, because I for sure don't want to have like go into a government building and there's like eight, 80 Vietnamese people there all just speaking Vietnamese to the Vietnamese people coming in there and giving them priority because there's like they're shills. Basically, they have to like adhere to the Japanese standards and that way I'm fine with it. They speak Japanese to me. I speak Japanese to them uh, and so on and so forth. I'm fine with that, but it would have to be like vetted and you have to follow a very strict protocol and you'd even have to put like uh, AI listening systems into the government buildings to make sure that the workers are speaking Japanese as the de facto language and not all speaking their individual languages. It'd have to be like a threshold. Like if it goes beyond 10% of another language being spoken by the staff, they would have to be fired like unequivocally, just like you're gone. You spoke over 10% of your secondary language in the in this office. People aren't here for that. You know, you have to speak. And I would be disqualified from those jobs because I certainly couldn't do it. But that's that's what I would expect. Um, I'm not going to read the article. This was from this from quite a while ago, January 19th. Next, Tokyo bus operator is hoping on uh, foreign drivers as shortage looms. Now, I would be totally fine with foreign drivers if they were from Germany or something like that, or, uh, you know, people that come from countries that drive on the same side of the road as Japan and countries that drive, have similar laws as Japan. But if it's like, hey, we got 30 new Peruvian bus drivers and they just arrived in, in Japan uh, three months ago and they're all trained up and ready to go. I'm like, mm, I'm not sure if those Peruvian bus drivers are going to be leaving their cultures behind. You know, we can all um, enjoy the uh, idea of um, uh, of being in a multicultural society on like a face to face value. Like, hey, you're from Peru, from Canada. Let's have a lunch. Okay, sure. But it's like now we have 100 Peruvian bus drivers, and none of them really speak Japanese. But there's a workage shortage. It's like, ah, that's I don't know what's gonna go on there. It's a real injection of something that could not be good, uh, you know, because a lot of those um, countries in South America don't really follow the law of the road. And even if you're trained up to do so in Japan, if you're over the age of 30, mm, I think there's going to be some uh, hardware that's not going to be able to be overwritten. Next headline, Japan's foreign workers surpassed 2 million for the first time, led by Vietnamese. This is, comes to us from NikaAsiaDay.com. Um, Indonesians are fastest growing nationality as skilled labor program expands. 
Tokyo. This comes to us January 27th. Again, it's a week ago, but it's not like the number is still around 2 million, by the way. The number of foreign nationalities, nationals working in Japan has topped 2 million for the first time, the Labor Ministry reported on Friday, as the country takes in more factory hands, caregivers, and other labor from Southeast Asia. The figure for October was up 12.4% on the year to nearly 2.05 million, a growth rate of 6.9 percentage points higher than October 2022, COVID. By nationality, Vietnamese made up 25.3% of the workers at 518,364. This was followed by 397,918 Chinese workers and 226,846 from the Philippines. Uh, shout out to Takeshi. He's a Filipino, half Filipino, half Japanese. He's a truck driver. Good dude. In terms of residency qualifications, individuals holding visas issued to those in professional and specialist fields grew the most, jumping 24.2% to almost 600,000. Within that group, those classified as specified skilled workers soared by 75.2% uh, to 138,000 including around 70,000 Vietnamese and 26,000 Indonesians. The number of Indonesian specified skilled workers more than doubled from a year earlier. Overall, workers from Indonesia grew 56%. Japan established the specified skilled worker visa to ease labor shortages in various sectors. Candidates must pass the skills test and a Japanese language test. Many of these visa holders work in manufacturing or nursing care. Highly skilled professionals, including researchers, engineers, and managers. Such uh, workers receive preferential treatment. Um, and it goes on from there. It talks about the weaker yen and so on and so forth. In 2014, Japan's education ministry introduced a program allowing foreign children to receive Japanese language lessons in place of regular school classes. But a survey in fiscal 2021 found that more than 20% of eligible children were not receiving those lessons, uh, owing partly to a lack of teachers. Uh, it's just some extra knowledge there. The professional class is growing. But again, you didn't hear like um, France or Germany or anything. It's like it's Indonesia, it's Vietnam, it's Chinese, which is totally fine. But sometimes when people think like, if they're a migrant, they're like, oh, migrants, more and more migrants are coming. They might think it's people like themselves, like me, a white boy Canadian. But no, 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 no. So the uh, workers are changing very quickly in uh, Japan, and they are changing according to nationality and according to the labor shortages, which are being brought on increasingly by the depopulation. Uh, okay, I'm going to stop it there uh, for the... Um, time being there. We're kind of reaching up an hour here. So that's going to be, I shouldn't call it Weird Corner, but I'm going to play Weird Corner again because that's what I began with. Weird because you don't know. Weird Corner. And that's going to be the podcast for today. So thank you for listening, everybody. Uh, kind of a strange uh, array of topics for today. Uh, next, uh, I'll be I'll be doing another podcast this week, and I'm going to focus more on uh, Japan Society 5.0, um, eating the bugs, and uh, some of the issues with the um, the North Korean diaspora living in Japan. These aren't necessarily migrants, but they were left behind here in a way after World War II. Uh, Korea was once part of the Japan uh, nation; they annexed it in like 1905 or something like that. 
Uh, and then after World War II, when the Korea, you know, was split from North and South, uh, created a real complicated national thing in, in Japan because the Koreans couldn't become Japanese a lot because they they didn't have the paperwork to become Japanese after they were removed from being Japanese. It's a really strange thing. So we're going to jump into that next time. We'll also take a look into the supply chain wars and, and so on. So thank you for listening, everyone. So you found it. The Japan What Podcast, episode 129, from the Tomahisacho Studios in Shinjuku, Tokyo, Japan. I say to thee, Ja, Mata, Ne.